And I'll just I'll just preface this that these two issue Legion issues, the only two I've ever read. I know what I know about the Legion. You can oh put wow! On a stamp. I really know nothing uh, about this group. All right. Well, feel free to ask questions. Then I will. Oh, I, I got I got questions. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spataro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. 1987 was an incredible year for DC Comics. Their universe's consolidating line-wide mega-hit maxi-series Crisis on Infinite Earths had wrapped up the year before and left DC Comics with a nice new sheen of freshness and reinvigoration. Superman had been successfully and awesomely rebooted and revitalized under the master guidance of one John Byrne. The Flash, Wonder Woman, and the Justice League, for example, all got new leases on life with top-name creators and exciting new directions, and even Batman got just a bit of a tweak. The Watchmen maxi-series and Alan Moore's legendary run on Swamp Thing were both winding down, and some of the characters and properties recently acquired by, excuse me, by DC from defunct Charlton Comics were successfully relaunched and integrated into the fabric of the now cohesive DC Universe. Oh, and mid-year, Wild Dog debuted. Uh, well, they couldn't all be hits. <laughs> but in short, DC was back on track and the readership, a good chunk of which was newly acquired as well, thanks to the aforementioned revitalizations, was psyched up, strapped in, and ready to see where this rebirth of creativity at DC Comics was headed exciting times however along with this rebooting and reimagining and relaunching and what have you came a few problems nagging and persistent questions arose sure to keep any nitpicky nerd awake at night or debating for endless hours with his chums at the local comic shop over what exactly the deal was with this new continuity questions like if wonder woman is a brand new character now that has never existed before and is just debuting who the heck is Wonder Girl then? Or who is Power Girl if there never was an Earth 2 Superman for her to be the cousin of? Or who is Fury if her parents never existed? Or what inspired Dick Grayson to take on his current superhero name if there never was a Bottle City of Candor nor a Nightwing or Flameboard to protect it? And so on and so on and so on. Many of these questions would, of course, eventually be addressed some quickly as writers scramble to set things right and some taking many years. Some were satisfactory and often innovating in the answers that they provided, and some, well, not so much. Atlantean Power Girl, anyone? But quite possibly the biggest lingering question left behind by all this retinkering was, who were the Legion of Superheroes if Superman was never Superboy? Now, when John Byrne submitted his proposal for retooling Superman in the mid-'80s, Removing Superboy was one of the key things that he planned to do, if DC okayed the idea, and he thought of this. 
DC, of course, did approve the reboot, and Byrne was told simply, don't worry about it. So he didn't. But almost immediately upon the publication of Man of Steel number one in July of 1986, DC was besieged with letter upon letter from fans, some of them quite angry and upset, demanding to know the answer to this question. If the Legion was formed through being inspired by the legend of Superboy in the 20th century, and Superman now never was Superboy, then what the hell? Well, dear listener, tonight, in a crossover between Third Degree Burn podcast and Back to the Bins, we present to you part one of our coverage of the four-issue epic that was DC's attempt to answer precisely that burning question. I'm Scott Gardner, and I am very happy to be here tonight because ever since uh, I ever got the idea in my head to start podcasting, this is a story I have wanted to tackle, and that is no exaggeration. I plan to be very verbose tonight because this is one of my absolute favorite stories of all time, quite possibly my favorite post-crisis Superman story of all time. It's, It's definitely up there. I really love this one. Joining me is uh, one of my co-hosts in crime, uh, producer Paul Spataro. Hello. And from the Third Degree Burn podcast, we have Mr. Tim Elliott. Hello. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And his co-host. I got away with just hello. (laughs) Brian Hughes. (laughs) Yeah. uh, You know, Wild Dog, I got to say, he actually got to the TV screen before Stargirl. That's got to mean something. Hey, I own all four issues of Wild Dog. I don't think I even read them, but I bought them. I don't <laughs> know why. <laughs> I bought them, never read them. Uh, I had I had to pick somebody to make fun of, and then Wild Dog just seemed like a <laughs> like an easy shot. I well, did not know that Wild shot. Dog had appeared in in live action, though. That's that's frightening. He's, he's on the Green Arrow show as as one of their many cast of extra characters. Ah, uh, okay, cool. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into this. Uh, I have the the synopsis for the first book that we're going to be looking at. So chapter one of this is Legion of Superheroes, volume three, number 37, which is cover dated August 1987, was actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on May 5th, 1987. Cover price was a whopping dollar fifty. Uh, this is uh, the Baxter series, by the way, uh, the Legion Baxter series. So that's why the price is a bit higher on this particular book. Cover by the uh, unfortunately recently departed Steve Lytle, uh, who's something of a Legion of Superheroes legend in his in his own right. Uh, it depicts the Legionnaires Brainiac Five, Cosmic Boy, and his girlfriend Night Girl. Uh, Monel and Ultra Boy reacting startled to the classic smiling pre-crisis Superboy smashing through a large Welcome to Smallville roadside billboard and zipping off over their heads. It's uh, it's a pretty cool image. Is that a nipple? A nipple? Uh, it, n- night Girl, is that is that a nipple? It must be, I'm drooling. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, um you know what yeah i'm just noticing that for the first time yeah i, I yeah <laughs> i never noticed that but i guess i didn't look that hard um, i think it's just a perfect placement of the black line from the sign with that you know with her chest just uh right sorry <laughs> 
Didn't mean to derail. <laughs> Gotta do something when Dr. Bill's not here. <laughs> I like this cover image a lot. Um, yes. I don't want to be disrespectful to Steve Lytle, you know, seeing as how he, he recently uh, passed and everything. Um, but I'm kind of hot and cold on his art style. I, I always was. Uh, some of his stuff I really like. Some of it um, just does nothing for me. This one's somewhere in the middle. I, I like the the basic layout of this quite a bit. I think the, the Legionnaire's anatomy is a little bit wonky, but, uh, but the basic concept of the cover I like a lot. I do think it's a pretty uh, dynamic image. And Cosmic it's Boy cool. has serious derp face. Who does? I'm sorry? Cosmic Boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. I think I, it's just—I think it's a cool cover, just because at this point we weren't sure we were ever going to see something like this again. I'm not crazy about the faces on it. I mean, I mentioned Cosmic Boy, but I'm not crazy about Monel either or Brainiac. Night Girl looks fine, and then on Superboy, his face kind of looks fine. But I'm not a big fan of when shadowing and light. Yeah, are specifically delineated by lines, you know, separating them the way they are on here. Right. I, I just, I think it looks unnatural. It, 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 I would rather now if you turn to the next page, you know, I don't, I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves too much, but if you, if you look at the way uh, Colossal Boy, the way the light is reflecting off his face, it's all done with the coloring, and that's more natural. That looks yes. right. To me. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas on Superboy, it looks too artificial. Yeah, it, look, I, it looks a little pop arty. You know, yeah. I gave you yes, that. yes, good. That's a good description. Yeah, I, I completely agree. This particular story is called "A Twist in Time." Uh, the writer is Paul Levitz, longtime uh, Legion writer. Artists on this are Greg Larock and Mike DiCarlo. Ink assist by Arnie Starr. Letterer, John Costanza, colorist, Carl Gafford, and editor was Karen Berger. Our story begins in the remains of Metropolis University's Time Institute in the year 2987 AD. Damaged, the Legion presumes by an attack by the Time Trapper, although they are not entirely uh, certain of this. Colossal Boy, in his supersized form, holds the time beacon steady while Monel and Ultra Boy use their powers to weld it back into place. With a blast of pure light from Sun Boy to polish the crystal structure and a healthy zap from Lightning Last to crank it up, the device is up and running again. Just in time, according to Brainiac 5, who tells the Institute's director, Circadia Senius, that the survival of the Earth may well depend on the Legion's ability to travel through time. As requested, Timberwolf and Block bring up the special larger time bubble Brainiac has prepared, which includes added equipment to counter whatever the time trapper may throw at them. Motivated by Cosmic Boys and Night Girl's recent encounter with the trapper in a strangely altered 20th century, see the 1986 Cosmic Boy miniseries for more details, Brainiac 5 proposes to take the fight to the trapper by having the entire Legion travel to his citadel at the end of time. This plan, however, is nixed by Polar Boy, newly elected leader, who says that EarthGov won't take too kindly to the whole Legion taking off when the planet may be about to be attacked. So Brainiac, forced to make do, loads the bubble with himself, Ultra Boy, Cosmic Boy, Night Girl, Block, 
Sunboy, the second invisible kid, and Monel, who actually helps propel and guide the time machine through the excessive turbulence from outside the bubble. But unknown to any of them, the Time Trapper is toying with them and sends them speeding backward instead of forward through time and grants them access to a destination they were starting to fear may have been forever closed off to them, 20th Century Smallville, home of Superboy. Donning mid-century American clothing, Cosmic Boy, Night Girl, Ultra Boy, and Monel venture into town to investigate, and Cosmic Boy in particular is puzzled as to how this Smallville, the Smallville they remember, can still exist if Superman's history now says he never was Superboy. Monel, however, confirms that this is the Smallville he remembers and, for a brief time anyway, actually lived in. Night Girl, taken with the sights, sounds, and smells of old Earth, aimlessly wanders into the street and is nearly struck by a passing police chief Parker who remembers Monel as Bob Cobb, friend of the Kents from a few years back, again confirming that this is the Smallville that they remember. Add to that the timely arrival of Pete Ross, another Smallville local and honorary member of the Legion of Superheroes who instantly recognizes his old friends. Your proof everything's okay here, says Ultra Boy. Sure everything's okay, it has been for weeks, responds Pete. Ever since Superboy saved us from those weird red skies in that energy wall, a clear reference to the crisis on infinite Earths. Pete says it's real it was real strange for a few days, just like Judgment Day was coming or something, then it all stopped and went back to normal. Superboy must have saved us like he always does, says Pete, but he won't talk about it and he's been laying low ever since. Pete asks if, that, if this is what's brought the Legion to town and Cosmic Boy supposes it might be connected, but confesses that their being here is an accident. Pete walks with the group to the Kent General Store, then takes off when the group ventures inside where they receive a warm welcome, hugs included, from Mop Kent, while Pa comments on how the boys have grown. They are also introduced to Night Girl, whom they'd not previously met. That evening at the Kent place, the four kids from the future are treated to a Ma Kent home-cooked supper. Pa just can't get over how grown up the boys are and reminisces about the day when Cosmic Boy and the other founding members first came here to invite Clark to join the Legion of Superheroes in the future. My, that was a proud day for me, he says. We had to invite him, Mr. Kent, says Cosmic Boy. He was the inspiration for the whole organization. He was the greatest hero in history. You're making me blush, Cosmic Boy, says Clark Kent, who has just entered the kitchen. The gang rises warmly to greet him, Cosmic Boy saying that they were worried about him as Night Girl gives him a peck on the cheek and Monel gives him a big brotherly pat on the shoulder. Clark invites them down to his basement lab to discuss what brings them to Smallville. They talk, and as the group is momentarily distracted by the impressive display of all of Clark's action figure-sized Legionnaire statues, the Teen of Steel suddenly bursts into super speed mode and whips out a time stasis projector and freezes the quartet like TV dinners. Heading back upstairs, he is met by Jonathan Kent, who asks him if he paralyzed them. Yes, Pa. They said four more Legionnaires were hiding in the time bubble near the town line? Yep, they did, the father answers. Son, are you sure this is the right thing to do? It's the only thing I can do, Pa. 
Asking Pa Kent not to let it trouble him, Clark changes to Superboy and heads out after a momentary distraction by Lana Lang. Outside of town, Pete catches up with the other four Legionnaires that stayed behind with the time bubble and warns them that they need to run for it. Go while you still can. The others went into the cat house, screamed, and no one came out. Exercising the better part of valor, the four Legionnaires heed Pete's advice, pile into the bubble, and attempt to split the scene, but are zapped by Superboy's stasis ray right as they crack the time barrier and enter the time stream. The Legionnaires, shaken, ponder if that actually was the real Superboy. Back in Smallville, Superboy considers the situation and finally concludes that Smallville, the Earth, maybe the whole universe is depending on him and that he doesn't have any alternative. In order to save all that he loves, even if it means tracking down the Legionnaires through time and trapping each and every one of them, he will not let Mon Pa down. Leaping into the air and crashing through the time barrier, Superboy plunges into the time stream. Destination, the future. And that's the end of our issue. What did you guys think of this one? Well, I loved it. You know, it was... It was interesting, you know, how the, the the team dynamic has changed so much from the the older days. I mean, I, I started in the in the the early days when Giffen and uh, Levitz were together. I think I started right when the Great Darkness saga was uh, was starting to pick up. And so mm-hmm. to see the, the the Legion as they are here versus you know what they were then. Of course, you, you know, a lot of them are still on that old model, but there's you know been some changes. Um, the artwork that Larock did was, you know, of course, not as refined, I'd say, as as Giffen's was back in the day, nor as Lytle's was. Uh, I, I always had a little bit of trouble with with Larock's art there. A lot of people with kind of dead eyes. I don't know that it just always got me a little bit. But I like the story, and um, I, I don't know how closely they worked with Byrne. Uh, I'm putting this story together to to take this in there. Did did you find anything on that? I did. Um, we'll jump ahead a bit in my notes because it's funny you asked me that because I've often wondered that myself because it does seem like the first chapter when, when we get to the the to the first Superman issue, the first Burn mm-hmm. issue, repeats a lot of what happened here. So yeah, you big, know, kind of filling in. It. Yeah, you know, filling in the readers that may not have gotten this chapter of the story. And it got me to thinking, well, I wonder how closely they consolidated. But I, fa- I made an interesting discovery, which is there are two pages um, in this story that are exactly mirrored by Byrne in his, sto- his first story, um, which are pages 23 and 24 in this. Everything. The, the perspectives, the panels, everything is exactly mirrored. But it's funny because Byrne basically does his rendition of those same two pages. But everything's in the same positions and everything. So they, they must have shared artwork back and forth between the two of them to be able to do the compare and contrast. That I thought was really neat. So basically you're, you're seeing the story from two different angles. So, you know, this starts with the Legion angle and the setup of the story and then of course the the superman one is you know superman's angle on the entire thing you know which is the other half of the story so between the two you know you kind of get the full picture it kind of mirrors that avengers fantastic four yeah i was just gonna say that brian (laughs) that we did recently yeah the two two angles that kind of 
kind of interlocked. Um, well, this feels kind of like a burn plot. This is kind of high concept, and it's explained a little more when we get into um, Superman, I think. Or is it that, anyway, when it's explained a little more, it seems that, and, and, and correct me if this is I'm wrong, this is a way to explain the existence of the Legion, because as you said, Scott, if there is no Superboy, how can they exist? So we find out, and I'm not going to spoil it, but we find out later, certain things happen to kind of explain why they do exist. And that sounds like... Exactly. That, that sounds I, like something I, Byrne would come up with. I think this is... Yeah, this is definitely an answer to that. Um, this is an attempt to to start to play with that idea, but we'll definitely talk more about that when we get to the the second two comics, you know, that are, that make up this four part thing. Because on the flip side, you know, we were just talking about how closely they may have worked and how certain things mirror each other and all that, and it seems like a very cohesive story. There is at least one big chunk. Uh, in those latter two books where something burn lays out is completely contradicted by something that happens in the last chapter in, in the final chapter of this crossover. So I, that's really interesting, but we'll, we'll talk about that, you know, down the, the line when that comes into play. So, yeah, I think they were closely coordinating, um, but not everything matched up exactly. And at the end of this whole thing, it's kind of open-ended as to both. Did they really solve the, you know, did they really answer the question, but also what does that mean going forward? And, and that's, you know, that's interesting to discuss too, when we get there. Well, I also find it interesting that the, some of the stuff that, that either it's burn or uh, this writer, the, the thing that like they say the time trapper does, which I'm, I'm going to say the pocket university talks about, uh, Burn later, you know, in his last couple issues, takes that and runs with it, you know, and introduces some new characters, and he and he visits that world again and kind of ends it, you know. Uh, I thought that, absolutely. So I, so I don't know if that's just him, if that's, this was maybe his idea and he wanted to play with that as his as he was leaving Superman, or he just liked this idea enough that well, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that. This this will help me. You know, tell that story that he wanted to tell, which was kind of controversial, with which we think we've already covered on our show. But well, Burton uh, never made bones about you know the fact that he really didn't like the Legion, uh, and it goes back to the very first you know story of the Legion and and Superboy, and the whole tryout and the super dickery that they put upon <laughs> Superboy. Um, that and the fact that some of them had their actual names on their costumes, so they look like those cheap mask costumes that we wore in the seventies. But uh, it really turned him off, you know, as a kid to the Legion. So he never had a, a big fandom for the Legion at all. And you would only draw them usually upon like a commission request. So doing this story here it had to have been, you know, I mean, the parts that he did, um, you know, he, he did things that they, you know, were not so sure about. And they even mention it in the story itself, you know, Polar Boy's. Uh, and this is what I was talking about earlier. Polar Boy picking the t the particular team to go in the bubble was, you know, they, they said that was unusual. Now, and the editor at the time, Karen Berger and Paul Levitz kind of were like, why do you want these particular characters in here? Not realizing what the uh, next cover was going to be. Yeah. Well, and, it's interesting you, you're saying he doesn't like the Legion because he drew the, the cover 
to Legion 36, the previous issue to this. Mm-hmm. Which it was I funny was because a, a lot of people were comparing the Legion in the Baxter era to the X-Men, uh, you know, which obviously is where Byrne really, you know, cemented his legend. Uh, so it's, it's a little surprising that he would be so down on them, especially yeah. if you read a lot of the early X-Men books. It's not like they were all that great either, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I if I would always think somebody like Byrne would look at something you know something like the Legion, and if he didn't like the way it was portrayed or the way it had developed, I would think somebody of his nature would say, you know what, let me get a crack at that and see if I can make it cool. See, I'm trying to remember if because if you know it could very well be that he didn't like the Legion. I I can't recall ever having heard that before. Uh, it, it may be, but. I've always found it very ironic that this became one of my favorite stories from DC you know, involving Superman and the Legion, because my understanding of this was always, you know, I don't, I don't know about Byrne not liking the Legion at all, but he did this particular story grudgingly because he was, he was upset with DC because he addressed this with them before he ever started his reboot of Superman. And a lot of people, came to and i think this persists to this day a lot of people came to blame burn for what became of the legion because basically you removed superboy from the legion history you really don't have a legion anymore and and people i think came to blame him for that so he was kind of forced to do this story to to try to set things to right when there never should have been a problem to begin with according to him because he went to them and said, look, if we do this, this is going to cause a big old problem with the Legion. And they literally told him, hey, don't worry about that. We got that covered, which they clearly did not. So this was We're going to make you to... fix it. Now, do they, <laughs> yeah, do exactly. they blame George Perez for Wonder Girl for what happened to her? Um, that's a good question. Because, probably. you know, probably. the thing that always bugged me is that wiped out my very one of my favorite comic book stories of all time is who is Donna Troy. Yep. And, yeah. you know, th- that completely gets wiped out in, in, in all of the, you know, crisis and everything. And Perez and Wolfman were responsible for both. Well, let, me, let me ask this about, fill me in on crisis, because I, I, I have to be honest, I haven't read crisis. Um, <laughs> I haven't, but I haven't <laughs> read it. We don't have time for that. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. My question is, I thought. I'm too busy reading Mad Dog. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need you to mail me your geek card when this is all over. Oh, man. Um, uh, well, I read uh, what's the last one I read? I read Infinite Crisis, which I didn't like. Um, oh. But no, I thought Crisis was. I know what the idea behind it was. That there was too many, too many continuities. They were to merge everything, and I thought it was kind of what Marvel did with their second Secret Wars, where they shoved bits of all the the Ultimates and the all this kind of stuff together, so that like Miles Morales exists in Peter Parker's world six one six, but it's not like he always existed. It's like they kind of knew that he was kind of ported over. So I thought if they jammed all of DC together, wouldn't the Legion just be, okay, well, we still exist in the 30th century, uh, which I, I feel sorry for him because now they're, they're the same year as uh, Mikey Byrne and the Discovery. But um, <laughs> they uh, <laughs> they would just exist there and they didn't have to rewrite their history. Or my I, I know we don't want to get in a big tangent about the crisis, but 
No, no, that's fine. Um, that I mean, the crisis is at the center of this entire thing. So, no, I I think understanding that uh, is kind of crucial to this story. So, so despite what what a lot of people want to label the crisis as, a lot of people want to label the crisis as a reboot. Crisis on Infinite Earths is not a reboot. What what it is is it's a consolidation. It's taking all these divergent uh, parallel realities and eliminating many of them and then what remains consolidating them into one cohesive timeline history so that now instead of earth two having the golden age heroes and earth one having the modern heroes and earth whatever having the charlton heroes and earth s having the shazam heroes they all have always existed on one earth with one cohesive timeline by doing that by combining that all together, it, it gives you really cool opportunities for all these characters to now be able to interact and hang out with each other. But with certain characters, um, probably the the most blatant of which would be the Legion of Superheroes, certain ones are now left with, a, with no history. Because what is... What what their entire thing hinges upon is their being inspired by the legend of Superboy and making him a member of their team. I mean, that's their whole origin. And if suddenly Superman never was Superboy, which the burn Superman never was, um, now who are they? And I, I just didn't understand why they couldn't say Superman inspired us. You know, in the, the by this time in the Legion history, they weren't just teenagers anymore, you know? Right. That was, again, this is my understanding. It's It's been a long time since I've done the, the homework on this, but my understanding, is, as I recall it, is that was Burns' pitch was, as, the, as the fix to all this, which was simply replace Superboy with Superman, uh, Burns' Superman. So make right. it where now, because it's a thousand i mean how well do we remember in modern day how well do we remember things that happened in the year 1021 uh, you know a thousand years ago from like it was yesterday okay okay <laughs> my know? great great great, so, great 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 time zero uh leaf erickson <laughs> did sail over it, here that well I, I i think if, <laughs> if they if, if they want to say well these teenagers were inspired by another teenager so they wanted to be heroes too it's easy right these yeah, teenagers right. were inspired by this adult man, and because they were teenagers, they wanted to be heroes. That's pretty simple, you would, and they would fix all of this. Right. Mm -hmm. And and he had even proposed that if you really still wanted to keep the teen angle, just make it a matter of, it's been a thousand years. Legends get muddled. History gets muddled. Things get forgotten. Things become legend. Thing, you know, myth and that sort of thing. So base it more on the myth and legend of Superman as opposed to the literal history, because it always seemed to burn, and it always seemed to me too, frankly, that they knew a little bit too much about what should be to them ancient history. Like, they had all the details, man. I mean, it's been a thousand years. I mean, you know, we as a society today don't very well remember things that happened a hundred years ago, let alone a thousand years ago. So I like that idea, and I think that was the easier fix. But instead, you know, they would try other things that that really muddled and detracted. And quite frankly, as much as I love this story, 
I will be the first one to tell you the Legion of Superheroes never recover from this story. When we get to the end of it, I, I think you're going to see why they just they never fully recovered from. The, and that's not to say there weren't other great Legion stories down the road, but they were never the same after this. Um, and that's one of the things that really appeals to me. Um, going back to what you guys were mentioning a moment ago about uh, spoiling ahead a little bit about Superman eventually revisiting that parallel world and everything. I always got the impression that that was burn basically closing the door on that. He, he wanted, I think he want he really wanted to distance himself from any more parallel stuff, you know, any more alternate worlds, any more Superboy. And that, I think that's why he ultimately did to that world what was done to it, because he wanted it to be closed uh, off he, forever. He, he certainly closed the door on it. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. Let, let me ask you this. The, so the super burn Superman that he when he rebooted. See, my problem is I started kind of reading DC after Crisis. So I didn't I didn't go through. I was a reader and then here's Crisis and I'm reading. So I didn't know what that was like to kind of suddenly, oh, everything's changed. So the burn, burn Superman, is that supposed to be the same Superman as pre-crisis and that Superman went through crisis? He, he remembered the crisis. Right. Um, I, I'm going to ask you to put a pin in that and we will ah. definitely discuss that next in the next chapter because that comes up in that story. And that's one of my favorite moments of that story is Superman's recollection of the crisis and... As a kid, I, I loved thinking about that stuff. Like, what did this now, what did this historical event now look like, you know, from his perspective post-Christ? And, and we'll definitely talk about that because that that's, like I said, that's one of my favorite parts of that story. So, cool. um, Paul, we haven't heard much from you on this. Yeah, well, once again, this, this seems to be a, a, a thing i'm falling into where i'm listening to you guys and i'm thinking oh that's cool yeah that's great <laughs> uh i i'm just becoming now, a podcast listener but you know i mean overall i i i really enjoyed the concept of this story you know i i stopped collecting a, right around the time of crisis so the post-crisis stuff i was out of collecting until, and i didn't get back until about the death of superman so this is this is really kind of new to me and I'm I'm kind of you know I've read the first two issues so far of this four issue crossover, but I have not read the last two yet, and I'm curious as to where it's going to go. When I do find it fascinating, kind of cool conceptually, I like the art in this book for the most part. I don't like uh, his his Larocque's rendition of faces. I think they're too angular and they're they're uh, not very expressive, to be frank. Uh, but I do like his layouts. I, I, I think it would possibly with a stronger inker or just to touch up the faces a little better. This would have been a really solid art book. Uh, I, I think that uh, the art, because the, the thing is, is the art's kind of hit or from, miss from one page to the next. And I think that's uh, the, the pages where Arnie Starr helped out because he's always done something with the eyes that I, I just in, in, in the times I've seen him in the 80s which is late in his career that uh, didn't look right. And cause you got Mike DiCarlo doing inks on there. Mike DiCarlo was just like a workman. You know, he, he was one of those guys that got in there and he was solid for the most part. You know, he, he kept yeah, everything consistent. 
Well, I'm, you look at the splash gonna... page, which has no facial close-ups. I think it's awesome looking. Mm-hmm. Then, then you cut to the next page. I look at Brainiac's face. I don't like the way it looks. You look at right. Miles face. I don't like the way it looks. You know, I mean, it's the close-up of faces I don't care for in this. But when it's not showing close-ups of faces, I think the artwork is solid. The faces do look a little elongated. That's what I find in some of the and and they they all seem to have like kind of a tilt to them, where where they they you know it creates like an angular look to them that I just don't think looks natural. It actually makes Saturn Girl look attractive for the first time ever to me. But but that's well that the page three, which has got light, it's lightning last when it's recharging this thing. Mm -hmm. Some of her her the, Uh the expression that bottom panel is a little adult, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, and some there are some scenes in here where people have, I think some, I think you said Brian, they have sleepy eye. They look at their yeah. eyes are half closed. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's 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 what I don't what throws me off on it is the consistency of the thin line and the thick line, and what he's like he's done a lot of inking almost with a pen, and there's outlines, and then he will then he'll do heavy inking around other areas and it doesn't seem like there's a nice balance between that and i don't really like that thin line almost like he traced everything with a pen or a, like a quill tip or something and then went back with a brush uh and then some of the heavy brushing also makes everything look a little bit like it's got a sheen to it look at some of the costumes they look very kind of reflective or a satiny and that especially like the uh, first time you see the um the police car on page 13, that looks like it's got a pretty good high shine to it. Some of the clothing looks that way, too. So yeah. that may be the re- I think I'm looking at a recolored versions. So that may be the recoloring. This is not I'm not looking at original scan pages. Well, page 13 is one of those I thought that that maybe Arnie Starr had a big hand on, because if you look at Pete Ross at the bottom, he's like like stone dies right there. Yeah, he's, and then, yeah, he's, then the <laughs> panel before he's like Looks like choked. he's really excited, you know. It's just uh, the, the the page is 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 mildly inconsistent, but it's only about the faces. Seems what right. I, I agree there. I, I've never it. seen anyone visualize time travel where I think, oh yeah, that looks real, <laughs> including this one. Especially not fond of the golden age trope of actually having the years in numbers <laughs> as they're flying by it. Oh, I I love that. I love that because I love looking back at old issues of well, anything, Legion, anything anything where they time travel and they do the numbers. I love looking back at those where now they they go past years that we've now lived through. I, I love that. That that always gets me really excited. So, you know, I'll read some old Superboy issue from, you know, the sixties or seventies and you know, as he's going from Smallville, you know, to the 30th century, he'll go past, you know, the year 1984 and 1999 and 2012. And, you know, I, I love that because now we've lived through those years. And, you know, I, I just I don't know. There's something cheesy about that, that I always really like. But I'm I'm going to give you guys something to ponder here because I've really tried to figure out with the art here. There, there's much of it I really love and there's a lot of it that I, I don't care for i'm a big fan of greg larock I, I actually think he's a really good penciler and i really liked uh the stuff that he was doing with the flash um 
I'm trying to remember if that was before or after this. I, I can't remember, but yeah, I, I like this stuff. That was the Mike Barron era. And, yes, I mean, that's right. That was right. like yeah. you know, the, the, the early teens, I think. Yeah. And uh, that was right after Weiss left. Yeah. And that was some really, really good stuff. It's around and the I, same time here. And I, I like this as well, um, but it's just not as, I don't know, there's, there's something that is a little off-putting. And I think what it is, um, is one of my absolute favorite comic book artists of all time is Jim Aparo. I love Jim Aparo. I love his Batman stuff. But late in his career, there's a lot of the stuff that it, it was almost like a, a switch got flipped or something because I started to realize, man, I really don't like this. This is Jim Aparo, and it just looks funny. It looks off. You know, is he is he getting old? Is he losing it? You know, what's going on? And for example, I'll point you to like a death in the family. I, I know that's considered a classic story and everything, but I really don't like the art in that. Uh, it just looks off to me, even okay. though it is Apero. And the reason why is that he was paired with Mike DiCarlo. Yeah. Now at the time I liked Mike DiCarlo because he also worked with um, Dan Jurgens on, on Booster, Booster Gold. Gold. It's one yes. of my favorite books at the time. And I like that stuff. But as I look back at that stuff and, you know, Batman from around death in the family and this Legion stuff with Mike DiCarlo over Greg LaRock, I see a consistency of dislike and I'm sorry, Mike DiCarlo. I, I think you're to blame. I, I think there's something with his inking style here. That's just not quite meshing. And uh, it, it does, you know, a lot of the choices of shading are awkward, like that panel where, yeah, Pete Ross looks like he has like like he's falling asleep as he's talking to the Legionnaires there. He just kind of has like a nodding off face. I think that's entirely because of the shading and the, and the, the way it's inked. Um, and there's a lot of that sort of thing throughout the story. So I think the, the inks are primarily what brings it down. Um, which is a shame because otherwise I, I think the art's really good in this. I, I actually like Greg Lorock quite a bit. I wonder if he did it there because he did the Power Man and Iron Fist stuff just like a year before, which his pencils on that was really, really good. And he had some really, mm -hmm. you know, some odd anchors, people I'd never, you know, you never hear from, you know, afterwards uh, was the guy's uh, Jerry Asserno or Asserino. Right. I don't, I don't remember. But I mean, the, the the work that he did there was really, really good. I thought. Now he wasn't the same one that worked on Justice League Detroit, was he? Or was that Luke McDonald? Uh, Luke McDonald and because um, I always got the two, other, the two. There's another up. guy too. I can't. I'm blanking on his name that I, I always really like. Uh, Patton, Chuck Patton. I Chuck think Patton. he was yeah. right around that time too. Yeah. So I like Chuck Patton, but uh, Luke McDonald's work on there, I, it didn't do it for me. So and that's I, I would always get because Luke McDonald also did the Iron Man uh, in the Denny O'Neill era. Right. I was not fond reason, of that. Yeah, but I always got the two mixed up. For right. some reason, LaRock and McDonald. For some, well, reason. I wonder if LaRock just did uh, rough layouts because we discussed that on our show that Burn sometimes will do kind of rough layouts. The anchor will come in and sometimes it won't look like Burn at all. So I wonder if this is why this is off, or he's just inking. Uh, he's just he's adding too much of his own artistic flair to this. But I. I... 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I was sitting there looking at page 22, an element lad in that leaned over, hunched over pose just like really throws me off. Well, look at what's the name below. Uh, is that Polar Boy? Look at him. He says, yep. Phew. He's like he's falling asleep. Yeah, see? He's... Severe dirt face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I'll say, yeah, I don't think I said, I, I really just didn't care for the facial renderings in this book. And I think if you eliminate yeah. that, uh, you know, my, my quibble about, you know, time travel being drawn uh, aside, I really don't have any criticism of the artwork otherwise. You know, it's, it, it's funny because I was thinking to myself when I was going over this again, he's like, yeah, he's one of those guys that doesn't make Cosmic Boy look stupid in a pink costume. And because, right. you know, sometimes some I, I think... Um, Who's there? Ernie Cologne did him in that four issue series, right? And he did him okay. Burn made him look pretty cool in uh, Legends. Mike Grill made Legends, him look good. Yeah. yeah. And Dave Cockrum, of course, put him in that, I don't know how to describe it, a cockroach. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Bustier. <laughs> Just, oh, horrid. Well, but uh, I don't, still, I don't think in this thing. issue, also, I don't think there's. Uh, much of a delineation between Superboy and Super and Superman because in page twenty one where he's taking his he's ripping his shirt open that looks like Superman yeah and he doesn't really look like Superboy not the way Burn and later we, this next issue Burn does a good job of drawing him he looks ten years younger yeah here he does well, that's really that's one of my big criticisms of uh, <clears throat> many artists is they're unable to draw young people. Yeah, and so if you go I, I much younger, case here. yeah, if you go much younger, Burn has, you know, Burn has a terrible time with children. Yeah, he draws, he draws them like little people. But... He draws, he, they draw them like <laughs> Peter Dinklage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think one of the, the questions question I have for you, Scott, on the on the Legion here, uh -huh. uh, on on page, uh, what is it, page four? Uh, Timberwolf is actually stronger than Block. Yeah, it looks like he's not having as hard a trouble. He's he's not problem. he's not struggling at all, and he's saying, "Stop complaining, block, and stop wobbling." Yeah, I I think he would be. I think he's he's on a par with um, not quite Monel, but I think he's on a par with like Ultra Boy. Um, that really? that was I one. Of I his, never realized his, he was that powerful. Oh yeah, yeah. I never read back on Timberwolf. Was he cyborg or? Because I know oh. that there was a point where he didn't think he was a real person. Like, he thought he was an android. Mm, but that's... I, I don't recall that. <laughs> that's all shady 70s reading. I well, guess. and that's also weird because, talking about Block, he's he's struggling with this. This thing is really dense. He's struggling with this compared to what he does in the next issue. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't seem like this would give him much of a trouble. But Right. Well, this I think he was, he's machine. also meant to, be, <laughs> meant to be kind of the the oafish, clumsy member of the team too. You know, well, he's a, just he's the he's the tank. He played video games before. He's the tank of the team. You know, I I just picture that he would have been the powerhouse of the team. So it seemed strange to me to have Timberwolf be more you know more powerful. But you know, I guess yeah, so. Timberwolf, to, to my recollection, I mean, he was he was a badass. He he was he was a pretty strong guy. I think that was his primary thing was that he was super strong. And, and block, player. block. You know, I mean, he was always the the super strong, but he wasn't an oaf. He actually, I guess you could say, he had more of a poetic soul. He started out as a villain 
it was it the League of Super Assassins or something along those lines, and eventually right. you know, turned around and became part of the Legion, fell in love with the White Witch, and um, right. you know, they showed him as having the heart of a poet. So it was <laughs> weird to, to to characterize him as an oaf. Well, that's if you think about it, that's kind of a the, the dichotomy they would do. You know, get somebody who's you think is kind of a big oaf, and yet they've got. You know, it was kind of like Colossus. Colossus, they did yeah. the next been that way. Colossus was more of a romantic, even though he was the, the, the tank of that group. This block looks a lot like there's a character and image that is almost a direct ripoff of this. He's, it's in one of those teams, Brigade or um, Stud Fuji, and it's not the other big uh, powerhouses they had in image, but there's a guy's costume looks almost exactly like this. Well, Block is very off-model in a lot of the images that I see compared to the Block that I'm familiar with. Uh, but he, he went through a lot of changes from his first early appearances to the Giffen, the, the Giffen work and then the, the Lytle work. And here, uh, here it's almost like they're trying to make him look like a knockoff of the thing more than mm. you know he was. Yeah, right. But, you know, there were there were issues where, you know, with, with during the Great Darkness saga where you're just like, this is dark side light. <laughs> and, um, you know, again, you know, it's uh, every every artist is going to make their model for it and hopefully they stay on on model. And yeah. Lytle was pretty decent about doing that for the most part. And I, I you know, looking at this issue, you can see that that, that um, Lorac is breaking away from the models in some cases. Yeah. Scott, I want to ask you, there are some uh, plots in here that you kind of skipped, like the Dream Girl uh, bit. Is right. Just because that doesn't, it doesn't really pertain to this story. It's, it's I guess, stuff that's coming later on down the line. Exactly. Okay. And, and that's one of those things that, uh, you know, Paul Levitz really is an incredible writer. I mean, he, he was a very prolific uh, comic book writer, but I actually think he's one of the greats that doesn't get near enough credit. And, and one of the things that he was masterful at doing and he does it so seamlessly, I, I think that's why he doesn't get enough credit, is juggling all of these characters. I mean, the Legion of Superheroes has one of the largest rosters in comics. Uh, I think maybe the, the X-Men might be the only one that's, that's got more members than, than the Legion. And, I mean, when you take in the sheer number of characters and moments and subplots and major plots and everything that's going on in any given issue, and the fact that the guy could keep it all straight, he could give at least a moment to just about everybody that appeared in the issue. That, I mean, what a magic trick. And he and pulled he it was... off issue after issue after issue. The guy was a master of that. And he wasn't just a writer. He was an editor. Right. If you remember back back in those days, and and of course he uh, he worked with Keith Giffen much the way that Bernie Claremont worked together on um, right. on on the X Men, and you know they made it work just as well there. I I will hold up the the Great Darkness Saga alongside uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga myself as one of my favorite uh, uh, storylines ever, and I've been trying for what five years to get Tim to read the damn thing. <laughs> He's right after he gets done with Crisis. That's right. I got to read Crisis first. No, read this one first because it happens before Crisis. And I've got Crisis digitally. I just have it. It's just I haven't sat down and and just haven't sat down and read it. 
Scott, who's the guy in the upper right-hand corner of page 11? It looks like Gladiator from X-Men. Let me see. Page 11? <laughs> is that Omac? No, it can't that be. That is... It could uh, be Omac. <laughs> Tear? I think that's Tear. Oh, okay. God, I hadn't thought about that character in forever. Not since that... Um, there was a four-issue Legion of Superheroes, Secrets of the Legion of Superheroes. The one where uh, Chameleon Boy finds out that R.J. Brand is his father. Yes, yes, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I love that just because it gave it every single member of the Legion and the Substitute Legion and and everybody. And what was a Tyrock and, you know, the other, which I never, ever <laughs> saw him in action, you know, right. uh, and, and, and other characters. And it, it gave me, of course, a... Uh, opening to Dev M, who I'd never heard of before, but I understand Dev M's got this huge history. He's one of my most. He's one of the characters of the of Superboy and Legion history that I'm most fascinated with because he has such an interesting history and just the fact that you know here's another Kryptonian survivor, um, you know that that ends up you know as a superhero operating on earth, I always thought that was a really interesting idea that they never did near enough with. And one of my favorite moments of, uh, the lead up to the crisis is when the monitor is monitoring. When we see all the different appearances of the monitor, all through all the different DC titles, the monitor himself is stunned to discover a Kryptonian, living in the 30th century he he didn't even know he existed and that was always one of my favorite little moments is because that's the type of thing that readers themselves would be stunned to learn that oh wait there's a there's a, another kryptonian survivor and he's a superhero and he did lives you, in the legion time did you so watch the show krypton that was on what two years ago no because he was on there oh that's cool mm. does the legion interact Primarily with Superboy, do they interact with any other DC heroes? Um, I mean, there'd be the occasional issue of like uh, Brave and the Bold or something like that. Um, But yeah, for the most part, it was, you know, they were pretty much a Superman thing. But, you know, they did, they, you know, they met the other heroes. Uh, There was a. Brainiac 5 had mad love for Supergirl. (laughs) Yes, yeah, Supergirl. But, uh, you know, there was a, at least one that comes to mind, a team up with with the J. It's funny because. uh, we covered this, you know, ages ago on uh, on Tales of the Justice Society of America. But there was a, it was a three way crossover. It happened in the pages of Justice League of America, but it was the annual team up of the Justice League and the Justice Society, and they threw the Legion in. So you've got mm-hmm. arguably the three greatest teams in comics all together in one story. You know, dozens and dozens of characters. You would think, man, that's got to be epic. And it kind of sucks. So it, <laughs> it's, it was it was funny to, to discover that, that, you know, this story that you would think would just be the most epic thing ever is actually not very good. <laughs> Page seven. I just I always thrill to when Monel gets to showcase his powers. Uh, Monel's still, you know, next to Superboy is my favorite Legionnaire. And I just love when he gets to kind of show off a little bit. So him grabbing hold of the bubble and really being the force that propels the bubble through all the turbulence. I just thought was really cool. You know what this um, makes me think of though? It makes me think of that DC comics presents the original Mongol trilogy, um, where 
they basically Mongol steals War World, and Superman and Supergirl have to basically fight it. And right. in the third third chapter of it, Superman basically has to follow the the path that Supergirl took because she basically goes through War World so fast that the sensors couldn't detect her coming, and she apparently knocked herself unconscious and keeps going incredibly fast. So he has to start from a dead stop and keeps going and he cracks, you know, the light barrier, time barrier, every barrier, and finally comes one barrier close to God and gets stopped by the specter. And this this right here made me think of it, just you know, that they were they were doing that. And I love that little heartbeat effect that they have there in the middle of page nine. Right. Looks very Bill and Ted to me. I know that- <laughs> I know the story you're referencing, and it has been so long since I've read that I had I had completely forgotten that. So I'm gonna have to go back and look at that because I Len think that's Wien Jim and, Starlin stuff. Yeah, Len Wein yes, and Jim Starlin working together. Yeah. They create Mongol the Merciless there in that story. The issues that Starlin did on DC Comics present every one of them is a treat, especially the one right before yeah. him with Green Lantern, and it's also <laughs> got that Teen Titans preview. That's in the middle of it. So if you still have that book, it's worth a crap ton of money. I'm still chasing that book, unfortunately. So ah, yeah. I got that. <laughs> I DC know. Comics presents number twenty six. Man, that's that's a, a, a grabber if you find it. What does this that is... go for? Oh shoot, I couldn't. Do More that. than I'm willing to pay for. Yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> this is a little uh, little little back to future too, because page ten, they land, and they hide behind this. I guess they hide the 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 thing behind the billboard. Then they put on civilian clothes and go into town. So yep. all they need is a is a skateboard chase scene and uh, <laughs> and then uh, it's Lida. the right time. It's the right year yeah. for that. I mean, well, and Lida does it. Keith Keelord walks across the street and almost gets run over by a car. <laughs> I find it really interesting on page twelve that, to my mind, they didn't often cement Smallville in a particular specific year they they might tie it to you know nebulously to a specific decade although they i think they tried not to uh, especially as the years progressed but here there is a reference on the billboard or marquee rather of the theater on the top of page 12 the movie houseboat starring carrie grant is playing now that movie came out in 1958 so presuming that that's first run that places this 1958 and that's that in itself is a bit problematic because I like to think of Smallville as being, you know, early fifties, you know, earlier than this actually. But then when you get to doing the math, it really doesn't work because Superboy, especially as he's drawn in this story, but say take into consideration this story and Burns take on Superboy, I'm going to place Superboy at about 16 years old. So you got 16 years old. This is 1958. Our story in the present's taking place in 1987. So that puts Superman at about 45 years old. And that's too old for Superman. So, yeah, I'm not sure at this point. Yeah, because isn't, isn't he supposed to working for them? I, thought, I don't burn establishers, but I thought he was supposed to be about 30. Yeah. Because uh, that's what yeah. Reeves is, you know. In the movie, he comes out of the Fortress of Solitude in the twelve years, and he's then he's 29. 30, 30, 29, yeah. 30, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, well, yeah, for, for the longest time, I, you know, it, this definitely uh, kind of fell by the wayside over the years, but for the longest time, at least when I was a kid, Batman, anytime you would ask the answer, man, Batman and, and Superman both were eternally 29 years old. Yes. <laughs> uh, yep. And then at some point that, that kind of just fell by the wayside, but I think uh, that was still generally the idea. Sliding uh, sliding time scale, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, they, they they had said apparently some point before during the Wayne Boring years that he was more like in his forties. But right. once they went to that that Bronze Age, that definitely it was the eternally twenty nine, and uh, wasn't it around? Golly, wasn't it around that this issue that E. Nelson Bridwell? Did they mention that at the very back? Yes. Or, yeah, you know, some Bribble passed away. Yeah. 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 Which was really, I know it's in one of these four issues that we're going to look at that his, uh, the, the little eulogy for him is, is in there. And that, that's a shame. That guy was, he was invaluable to DC. And in a lot of ways, what DC became uh, later and especially what they are modern day, I, I, I kind of attribute to losses of people like, E. Nelson Bridwell and Mark Grunewald and some of these guys that were real continuity wonks, you know, that, that really kept this stuff straight. Um, once we started to lose some of those guys, I think that's why comics took the turn that it did, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't mind that on this because I, I think, you know, <laughs> it, it, no, but you know, the thing is this issue and the next issue are an incredible bridge and it's almost, you know, you can sit there and you look at Crisis or you can look at the Dark Knight Returns. You can look at all this stuff. This right here is the actual bridge that you cross that basically chops off and cut, takes the whole, you know, gold, silver, bronze and all that and throws it off into the ocean. This is where we move forward. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that. I, I think I'd. I think I'd put it a little bit kinder than that, but yes, this definitely brought a close to uh, an era. I think crisis for the most part closed out, uh, you know, the, the silver age, because I still argue that DC never really had a bronze age. I know some people disagree with that, but I really don't think DC did have a, you know, if they did, it was nebulous because certain characters, yeah, did mature exactly. and, you know like say you know the 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 denny o'neill neil adams stuff with green lantern green arrow that's very bronze age but then there's other characters like superman like superboy that never really had a bronze age they they just kind of went you know they they had a long extended silver age so i think that's why the the years are given uh at the death of the flash in crisis number at the end of crisis number eight, uh, the year is given 1950. It's either four or six, I think to 1985 Mm -hmm. for the flash. And I think that was done for a very specific reason, which was to say, this is the end of the silver age. This, this draws a a curtain on this era. Um, this story here, as we're going to see, um, draws another curtain on another era and, uh, and a very important one for, for DC and for, you know, the Superman family of titles and everything. So I, you know, this, this is a very important story for that reason. And you're right. It was, uh, it was a bridge, um, but it was also, you know, a, a, an ending, uh, of sorts. 
just to wrap up my notes real quick here, page 13, um, there's a reference to Bob Cobb. That was the secret identity that Pa Kent gave to Monel uh, <laughs> while Monel briefly lived with them. Uh, when Mon-El also first- the name of the maestro on Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I, you know, to me, Bob Cobb has always been the worst <laughs> secret identity name ever because, for one thing, not only does it just sound goofy, um, but it's also the name of the inventor of the Cobb salad and not exactly <laughs> inconspicuous. So it's kind of like Monel's secret identity being like Milton Hershey or Henry Ford or something. It's a little too recognizable. And yeah, it's it just sounds goofy, I think. Well, I mean, just just to say, though, I, I mentioned it in jest about Seinfeld, but Jerry Seinfeld is a huge Superman fan. Yes. yes. Yes, he is. So right. it's very possible yeah. that he was homaging this when I he, believe he was. gave that character his name. I absolutely believe he was. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld knows his stuff when it comes to Silver Age Superman. So, yeah, it would not surprise me at all. It has nothing to do with the story or what we're covering or anything, but I just have to say, page 17, I have always hated this new look for uh, Wildfire. Yeah, I, I hate this outfit for him. Uh, it's just ugly. I like his classic one, and I think he goes back to it, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty sure. Um, page 18. I made a really cool discovery. Is it much? I've read this story a million times, and I noticed something reading it uh, again for this that I never noticed before. And I thought I want to get your guys' opinion of it. So, page 18, last panel. This is where Superboy is, uh, or Clark Kent rather, has entered the room while everybody's having dinner. And the Legionnaires and Night Girl get up and they're greeting him warmly and shaking his hand and patting him on the back and all that. Notice Mon Pa Kent in the background. Now, the background is a, is a bright, it's like a hot pink color. The cut characters in the foreground are all brightly colored. Mon Pa Kent are drawn in black and white and shadowed in the background. And both of them have a very worried expression on their face. And I think that's just a wonderful piece of foreshadowing of where the story is going. And I never noticed it till now. And I just think it's awesome. That is really good. I think that's really cool. Well, do you think it's, I mean, it's foreshadowing. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, but is it, does it seem like later that they seem to be in on, that he has confided to them that that the legion may be dangerous to what he you know he to what he does when he gets the his um little um ray out and zaps him and and cuz Pa Kent comes down and says you know uh did you did you paralyze him he goes yeah as if like he had uh like kind of like mon pa in on it already he'd already warned them that maybe dangerous and I'm play, play along until I can get him down to the basement where I can zap him Yes, or you think right. Costner, Pa yeah. Kent? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Scott, to your, to your no, thing, I had never noticed this before, and, and I've read this several times. On the next page, on page 20, I didn't notice the little whoosh and him going super speed Yeah, to, to pull up that, that projector there. You know what's funny is I've read this story, I cannot tell you how many times, and every time I turn to this page where he grabs that thing, every single time I think he's grabbing the Phantom Zone projector. Every time I read it, it looks just like a Phantom Zone projector. And I, I always forget for just a moment that no, he's not sending them to the zone, he's just paralyzing them. But it, it's just funny because it, it looks exactly the same, you know. He better not put them on the shelf next to each other if he ever needs to grab you. He's going to grab the wrong one, you know? 
Well, that panel right below where he says, sorry, my friends, and, it, and he gives him a, a zip. That looks a little uh, dicko, the way that's inked and the kind of the, yeah. the light in his eyes. looks really, looks like a little Spider-Man-like to me. It looks a little ditko, and it also looks a lot like, I can't quote your rhyme and verse the issue number, but there's an issue of Adventure Comics late in the Adventure Comics run where um, Staten was doing Superboy. There's a cover that looks a lot like that, where uh, somebody is using the Phantom Zone projector on the cover, and it looks a lot like that one. I've always had, especially when she's drawn really well, always had the hots for teenage Lana Lang. And I don't think she ever looked hotter than the bottom page of page 21. And what the hell is wrong with Clark? Dude, she wants you. Yeah. She's throwing herself at him. And he's just like, yeah, I got to go do something. So, yeah. Stupid Clark Kent. (laughs) Work first. Um, Page 23, last panel. Does that bike look weird to anybody else? It looks a lot more like a motorcycle to me than a bicycle. Yeah, it doesn't look. It looks yeah, odd. Yeah. yeah, it does look odd. Just in case anybody was wondering, Pete Ross was made an honorary men- member of the Legion of Superheroes in Superboy number 98, which was also the first issue, uh, the first appearance of Ultra Boy. And he was made an honorary legionnaire as a reward to him for keeping his knowledge of Clark Kent's secret identity to himself. Uh, he accidentally learned that Clark was Superboy in Superman, or excuse me, Superboy number 90. And he would keep that secret all the way until DC Comics Presents number 13, 14, 15, something like that when he was an adult and needed the knowledge to try to convince Superman to save his son who had been abducted by aliens. Uh, I always liked Pete Ross. He was always one of my favorite supporting characters. Is that when he was managing the IHOP? (laughs) (laughs) Scott doesn't know that. (laughs) What? Oh, no. Scott hasn't seen the movie? In Man of Steel, Pete Ross is the manager of an IHOP at the the end of the movie. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Don't ruin this. Bring in man of steel. <laughs> no, you know the 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 thing is like there. I'd always had a question on the um, the Alan Moore story. You know um, the the last last story before the burn era started. I forget what the title of it. Whatever what happens, happens whatever man, happens, the man tomorrow. And that you know the toy man basically kidnaps Pete Ross and tortures him until he releases Superman's secret identity. But how did anybody know that uh, he had yeah. that? Of course. Obviously, you can say it was Mr. Mixius Pidlick that uh, gave him the seed of the information since he was behind everything, apparently. I know I'm in the extreme minority, and I have the utmost respect for both Alan Moore as a writer and especially I as a Superman story. because the dude knows his stuff when it comes to Superman. I'm not... Uh... I'm not particularly enamored of that story. I'm, you know, as I'm I'm saying, I think anybody could write the last Superman story because I don't think it's particularly hard to do. Um, The, the, the writer, you know, and that it drives me nuts. And here I am tangenting when I said I didn't want a tangent, but no, no, it's fine. I continue to see it all the time on the internet. These lists of the greatest you know, you can in, insert any character. The greatest Batman stories ever ever told. The greatest Superman stories ever told. Blah blah blah, and the lists are always the same. It's it's the big stories that have gotten all the big media hype. With Batman, it's always Batman the Killing Joke and Dark Knight Returns and um, you know these other stories. You know, Year One with Superman, it's always the same thing. It's always 
you know, the death of Superman, it's always, uh, for the man who has everything, it's always, um, all whatever happened Superman. to the man yeah, of tomorrow. No, all I like the man, the Superman who has everything. You know, I like that one. And I, I do too. But my point is, you know, you pick these stories that are not everyday stories. And that makes me a little bit crazy because I think when it comes to, uh, uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. I, I think anybody can write the last Superman story. The writers that have my respect as Superman writers are the ones that can do Superman for months or years and turn out consistent quality, tightly, uh, you know, tight continuity stories that make me interested, engaged and care about that character. And that goes for Superman. That goes for Batman. That goes for any of them. And so I always have problems with lists like that when it's some superstar that sails in, upsets the apple cart, makes a big splash, and that becomes touted as the greatest. That, to me, those lists always reek to me of people that just haven't read enough Superman because there's tons of other stories out there that are better than most of the stories that they put on well, lists. I think lists like that in fandom, that's any fandom, they get kind of established and new people coming in as you're kind of indoctrinated or, you know, well, I'm a fan of this now. You come in and it's almost like you're handing up your, this may hand you the pamphlet. Okay. These are the top Superman stories. We've all, as fans, we've, we've, we've decided on this. So here you go. So worship these. And it just kind of gets passed down to, to the point where you're almost like you're brainwashed. You're like, okay, these, this is a great Superman story. This is a great Batman story. This is a great Spider-Man story without ever sometimes even looking at it or reading it yourself to determine uh, if I'm that way with Watchmen. I, I appreciate Watchmen, and, I'm, and I think Alan Moore does a good job. I like the artwork, but I don't put it as high on my list as everybody else has it. As right. you know, So either I'm missing something or it's been kind of overly inflated. It is way overinflated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think you're missing anything at all. No, it is super overhyped. Uh, yeah, that's going to be the subject of a show one of these days when I eventually get around to it. You know, 10 stories that are that I think are better than Watchmen. <laughs> I think it's a good <laughs> subject for a show. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> uh, that's all I've got on this one. I know we went really long on this uh, on this first issue. Do we want to do grades on this? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I don't think everything else right. about this. That is a uh, that is a bins trope. So we will continue that for this one. So uh, I'll go ahead. Uh, I'll give my grades on this. I like the cover. I'm not real nuts about the cover. The basic layout of it, I think, is is fine. Um, it's just the the finished project. Um, I have the utmost respect for Steve Lytle. I'm really sorry that that guy's gone. Um, but like I say, I was never the biggest fan. I'm, I'm kind of hot and cold on his artwork. Um, this particular cover, I think I'm going to go a, a B minus, which might be overly generous, but I, I do like the, the concept and the layout. Uh, it's just the finished pro project, uh, that I'm not super crazy about interior art. I really like a lot. I wish the inks were, were better. I, I wish they were a little more refined. Um, I, I do really blame the inks for a lot of the seeming wonkiness of the art, but as a layout guy, as a penciler, I think Greg Larocque's tops. I, I really think he's a great, uh, artist. 
So I, I like it despite the deficiencies of uh, the inking job in this. So I think on the art, I think I'm going to go an A minus. Honestly, I, I really do like it despite uh, some of the shortcomings. Uh, I, I think the guy's a really solid artist. I think he's very dynamic. Um, and I'll be pointing out at least one instance uh, of a sequence that gets mirrored in the the first chapter, you know, the first burn chapter that we're about to look at that I actually like the Lorac stuff better than the, the burn take on the very same scene. So uh, I, I think that speaks volumes right there. Uh, the story story's top notch. Uh, this is this is one of my favorites. Uh, even you know with the injection of uh, some of the the subplots and things that I skipped over, um, it's a meaty read, but it's it's really good. I think it's very tightly plotted and and I like it a lot. And I like the the beats that it hits in the Smallville scenes. It, it hits all the right notes. So yeah, I really like this uh, story wise. This this is an A plus for me. Uh, so overall great on this. Again, I think it's a little better than the sum of its parts because it's really, really a solid story and a, and a really good and solid issue. Um, I think if you're if you're ever going to own just a couple of issues of Legion of Superheroes, I think uh, 37 and 38 are the ones to own. So, uh, you know, overall great on this. Uh, a straight up A. I think it's a super solid book. Okay. Um, I think the cover... Uh, I, I kind of agree with you on it. I like the layout of the cover. I think at a glance, you think this is a better cover than it is. And it's when you start looking at it more closely that yeah. you start seeing the deficiencies. So mm -hmm. like on the newsstand, you'd pick this right up because it, it looks really sharp. And then you get it home and you start looking at the faces and everything and saying, eh, not quite as good as I thought. But I still think it's pretty solid. So I'm going to say... I'm going to give it a B. I think it, it could have been an A if the faces were better, but I think it's a B. Uh, the interior art, uh, I, I think you hit it on the head. I think, you know, the layouts are really good. It's probably the inking, but the inking is part of the artwork. So, you know, when I'm grading the artwork, uh, you know, the inking counts, the coloring counts, everything counts. So it's a factor. I don't like the facial expressions here at all. I don't think they're well drawn at all. Um, so it's like for the layouts, I want to give it, I want to give it a B plus or an A minus. Uh, but for the, uh, for the faces, I want to give it a, a D for derp. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to say, I'm going to give it a C plus on, on just, you know, really with just the layouts carrying the day. Uh, and I agree with you. The story's an A. It, it really is intriguing where it's going and, and it feels like it's really well thought out, thought out. Uh, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to grade it based on the entire four issue run and say, it's just an A because of that. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to just give it a B plus overall uh, based on this issue and this issue alone. Ryan, you want to go? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, as far as the cover goes, uh, you know, I love the top half of the cover. You know, the Superboy in, in the upper part, you know, not necessarily the lighting portion of it, but the art of it, I like that. The bottom half, you know, of it is what really detracts from it based on what you guys were saying. You know, I agree with that. So I was going to give it a C, but I'm going to have to bump it up to a B just for the nipple. Um, <laughs> so, 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stand by that one there. Then, you know, on the inter interior art, it's like, you know, there's great pages and there are not so great pages. And so it, it's got me at that, you know, C minus uh, B, uh, B minus C plus uh, area. But I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and, you know, say it's a C plus uh, on the art. But I also am going to, you know, say that the colorist probably had a little bit to do that. Most of the coloring seemed to be okay, but there were times where the yellows just blended way too much across each other so that, you know, things got distorted a little bit. And there's a lot of yellows in this. Um, so, I, I mean, that, that hurt that all up. So I'm going to say C plus on the art. Overall, it's a, a B minus. Uh, the story, I, I, you know, I mean, the story, though, uh, the story is one of those that I keep going back and reading every couple of years. Uh, yeah, I guess like Scott, you know, it's one of those that, that gets me in. And I feel like I have to read all of it as part of that burned Superman, Legion of Superheroes kind of thing when i when i sit there and get into a, a reread uh makes me just you know want to go back to that and i don't have any problems with um the run so much um but yeah the the things that we point out in the art is, is for the most part what hurt it the most so uh for the story i'll give the story a, a b plus a minus uh and i can go into more of that later when we hit the last legion book because I just got one knock, but I don't want to release it until we go through the whole thing. And so uh, I guess that's a, what, a, a B plus for that. It's overall, it's going to be a B. Okay. Overall grade, yeah. All right. Uh, well, I hate every bit of this. No, no. Uh, <laughs> cover, I'm going to give it. I, I agree with everybody says that it's 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 just a good, solid cover. It's not... Uh, it's not terrible. It's not, you know, yeah, I, I agree, Paul. You probably would want to make you want to grab it off the, the shelf when you see it because you got Superboy coming at you. Uh, so I'm going to give the cover a B. Uh, the inside art, uh, I also agree that, that Rook is a good storyteller. His layouts work, and this moves the story along. But because there are a lot of inconsistencies in mostly the facial expressions and just some of the other, uh, it's mostly, I guess, mostly the faces, um, I'm going to give the art a B minus. And the story, I, I was intrigued by the story. And I think if I had a stronger connection to the Legion, because I'm kind of coming to this cold, I don't know anything about them. Um, it kind of makes me want to read more about, you know, their adventures or maybe pick up some of the books that aren't connected to this run. So I'm going to give the story a solid B, because I think if, again, if I was connected to it more or had more history with them, I would give it higher. But just coming in cold like this, I'm going to give it a, a B because it is a good, solid story. So I think uh, that gives me a B overall. So was this the first time reading this issue for both you and Paul? Is that right? It was for me. for me. Yeah. Well, okay. first time was for the show, except it was like about three months ago for the right. show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and and that, was, that just set up this incredibly weird deja vu when i started looking at it to, to review it today i was like we did this show already <laughs> like i in my mind i had conversations that we had yep you did it in your head but yeah um yeah you and my wife have the same disease where you have conversations with me that we didn't actually really have and then you hold me to them so yeah <laughs> oh yeah it was that time when i cursed you out oh. <laughs> 
Um, I, think, I think Missy and I both had that same one. <laughs> now, Tim, I'm curious. Uh, with, with so with not with no real familiarity uh, with the Legion, was there any character or characters that that maybe jumped out at you and intrigued you with this read? Uh, not really. I mean, maybe the Brainiac character only because he seems like does he have a tie with the other Brainiac? The is he a guy? yes. He's like yes. a long lost relative or something. Is he a, a robot or is he a human? He's a Kaluan. Uh Yes. <laughs> He's yeah, uh, that was always kind of weird and nebulous, at, at least to my understanding, is that he is supposed to be a descendant of the villain Brainiac, you know, the super, Superman villain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never really understood how that worked if Brainiac was a robot and Brainiac 5 is a uh, is a living being. Other than they were both Kaluan, whatever the hell that's actually supposed to mean, I'm not sure. So yeah, the whole thing's a little weird, but the 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 easy answer is yes, they are related. Okay. You mix Kalua with milk. It's delicious. <laughs> now, let, let me ask you, how did you guys read this? Did you read it from a, a, a CBR, a floppy, or did you read it from that Man of Steel um, trade? I read it um, from the a CBR because the Man of Steel doesn't include the covers. I read the it from the version CBR I have, it doesn't include the covers. I was provided to do this. Yeah, I, I have a, a scan of it that I'm reading it from, but I have actually a couple copies of the paper issue. I was just too damn lazy to go take them out. But uh, See, I've got like uh, digital copies of the trade paperbacks of the whole Man of Steel run. And it's been recolored in there completely. And it really helps out some of the artwork and it gets rid of dirt face in some of the characters uh, it does help Brainiac Five look his look pops a little more because his eyes are actually yellow and then green irises. Um, I'm gonna have does... to hunt that up because I'm not usually a fan of the of the recoloring stuff, but sometimes it does help, um, especially in something like this that may be a bit oversaturated too. So yeah, yeah, I I think I think it it actually helps it. Um, Versus some of the other ones where it just removes a lot of the detail in the uh, in the art. I want to take a look at that Mon Pa scene to see if that if it hurts it. No, it actually uh, keeps it there. It makes the uh, the um, Zipatone look a little bit more prevalent um, on Mon Pa Kent. I, I don't know if you guys noticed the Zipatone that was used on Mon Pa Kent to put him in shadow uh, in in the issue. But when you see it in the in the reprint, it's definitely uh, a lot stronger. But with the new coloring, it makes the guys look a, a bit younger than they appear in the issue that we're looking at, where they seem to be in like their mid twenties, and it look like like they could be in their their younger twenties. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, just a thought on that. But yeah, that's in the the Man of Steel number four, four trade paperback. Yeah, volume four. Yeah, I almost uh, gave that to you yesterday, but then I realized the covers are not included. It just kind of, it, they. So I want to be able to see the covers. So I, I had the I didn't, ones. I didn't realize it was in there because otherwise I wouldn't have asked you for that. Because um, I, I, I'd gone back to it to look at the the actual Superman issue, but not, uh, not, not these, and I didn't realize that those were there. I skimmed right past. Yeah, I didn't. That either, makes. That makes me really happy knowing that the the complete four issues of this are in there because I, I think 
I think you honestly could get away with with telling just the Superman side of it and not including those two Legion issues. But I think you get a much richer experience if you do include them. So I'm I'm glad they did that. That's cool. Yeah, because I read the because I was collecting Superman action. So I read those two comics. So I was a little lost because I had no idea who the Legion were. I didn't see. So I didn't read the beginning or the end of the story at the middle. So I was a little confused. What I love most about it, having that in a trade paperback, is that it shows just how much of a hack Eric Larson is. Because his issue of Superman starts right after theirs. <laughs> and his artwork on Superman is hideous. But that's just an opinion. I could be yeah, I like Eric Larson. <laughs> not here. Not for <laughs> Superman. That- well, some people are not. Yeah, some people are not. Again, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. I never read Savage Dragon, so you can't be wrong if it's your opinion. Your opinion, exactly. I mean, and, wait, wait, and you know what? You, you could which... be wrong if it's your opinion on a fact, but if it's your opinion on whether you like something or not, you can't be wrong. <laughs> which uh, which issue of Superman are you talking about with with Eric Larson? Uh, I'm sorry. Let's see if it's got the, if it's, uh, since it doesn't have the cover. Um. Let's see here. It's got to be significantly out. I mean, it's uh, the title is. Oh, is that is that the Doom Patrol crossover? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, it's it's from the Adventures of Superman. So it would have been, you know, the Jerry Ordway book. Okay. And and so this is an issue. He wasn't there. It's basically it's got on the cover. It's got Superman in kind of an aqua color look to him and he's crushing a gun. If I'm if I'm remembering that right, that may not be the one. It's it's no, it's the other one where it's based in water. That much I know. I have to look that up. I've completely forgotten about that. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, Eric Larson's another one of those I'm kind of hot and cold on. To be honest with you, uh, here he's trying very hard to be Todd McFarlane. Oh, that's his first mistake right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's actually a Marv Wolfman story uh, with credit to special thanks to Lynn Wein. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't remember this one very well. But yeah, I remember that I didn't like the art. And it somehow. It's Adventures of Superman? Yeah, it's, it's an Adventures, Adventures of Superman story. These don't seem to be in, in really good order because. And I am going forward, not backwards. Oh, they got all the cover. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, Adventures of Superman 431. The covers are in the back, Tim. Oh, are they? Okay. Yeah, they're at the very back. They need to be in the front. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't remember the the interior on it. Yeah, because he's, yeah, it's an Ordway cover of Superman crushing the gun. So that's why I didn't remember the interior was somebody else. But yeah, man, it's been ages since I've read that. So I I don't remember. Yeah, I remember when uh, there's a Superman crossover with the Doom Patrol uh, that I remember not liking the the Eric. I think that might have been my first exposure to Eric Larson was was that, and I didn't really care for it. And I'm still not the biggest Eric Larson fan, but he it worked for Savage Dragon. Of course, he created that character anyway. But I, I did like his Savage Dragon stuff. See, I haven't looked at any of that to to have any opinion on it whatsoever. And I mean, if you ever if you ever get the style. 
Yeah, I mean, if you ever get the inkling, I would say you know read read the first couple of years of Savage Dragon. It's actually really good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. My my problem my my biggest mistake was I read it too long because <laughs> it's it's diminishing returns and then uh, you know late in the thing uh, it, it gets very political and that's where it lost me. But uh, but you know the the early the first couple of years are really really good stuff. But. Well, uh, is that everything we've got for uh, Legion of so. Heroes? All right. For the next exciting chapter in our continuing coverage of this saga, where we'll look at Superman Volume 2, Number 8, in which the John Byrne rebooted Superman meets and battles the Legion of Superheroes for the very first time, seek out the next episode of the Third Degree Burn podcast, available right here on the Two True Freaks podcasting network at twotruefreaks.com. Paul and I will be there to discuss it along with that show's regular host, Tim and Brian. Then on the following episode of Third Degree Burn, the coverage continues with a look at Action Comics number 591, Superman versus Superboy. And then we return right back here to Back to the Bins for the thrilling finale in Legion of Superheroes Volume 3, number 38 with the greatest hero of them all. Join us. It's going to be a great ride. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. From a doomed planet in a distant galaxy to a fantastic underground hideaway. From the fortress of solitude to the bustling city room of the Daily Planet. Look, up on the screen, it's Superman. Superman, the movie. Bill? Bill, Bill, Bill? Oh, Bill, Bill.